Okay, very special episode today. This is a name that has been brought up on the podcast multiple times. Jim McCarthy. Jim. Nice to see you. It's nice to see you too. You are a true renaissance man. Can you uh can you tell the listeners a little bit about what you do, your different skills that you have? Sure. Um, I met Taylor years ago. Um, I'm a business consultant, sales training consultant, and uh, have some other business interests as well. But um, I worked with a company that he was working for. Uh, we do sales training, um, have our own nine-step process, um, and it separates the old school style to um, the modern era that we're in today and how to have conversations with people, how to get people to uh, make a decision because that's all you need. It's a yes or a no. It doesn't matter if it's always a yes, but you can't sit there and work on the maybes, um, put them in a pile and keep on, keep on rocking. And uh, as Taylor knows, I also went back to my roots. I started a uh, uh, private chef and food company. We are now one of the top. Uh, we are actually the top private chef company in Maine. <clears throat> and we also travel uh, Florida, Massachusetts, New York, uh, wherever clients ask. We'll come. We'll come to Nashville. That would be fun. And uh, we just love helping people no matter what role we're playing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's you started out in food service, right? That was like the first job that you had. Mm -hmm. So what were you first doing? You were working in a a kitchen at first, right? Before you got into sales. Yeah, I was working um, in the restaurant industry and decided that 80 hours a week wasn't uh, a lot of fun. So I went into a sales job and uh, figured, hey, this is going to be easy. I took a 50% pay cut, found out I was going to work just as hard, um, but figured it out and actually became top five, 10% in any selling situation that I went into and found out I was doing things differently than others. Um, I don't play well in the sandbox um, when I know something isn't going to work. And so I figured out my process. And once you start selling, Management leaves you alone anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember, Jim, the first time I met you. Do you remember that first day? Um, refresh me. Refresh my memory. Okay. So I was told numerous times to make sure I wasn't late because you were going to be there. I had no idea really what they were doing. I was kind of kept in the dark. Mm-hmm. Um. Because I was told, uh, hey, do you want to do sales? Or I was asked, hey, do you want to do sales instead of being an intern? Because I was an intern up up until that point at this company. And I never even knew sales was like a job that you could have. I had gone out to a client um, and was taking forever with them because it was like my my first sale. I didn't even realize I had like a presentation and everything like that. It was kind of on accident that it even happened. But um, I came in late. I remember I sat down and you said, hello, Taylor. And I, the only words that came out of, out of my mouth were, hi, I'm Taylor. And everybody laughed. Um, and it was so embarrassing. That's funny. 
that was fun. But you progressed, you learned, you uh, excelled. Oh, yeah. Um, Jim, actually, you know what? I want you to talk about the sticky note method. Do you remember the sticky note method? The uh, cold call sticky note method? Yes. Um, so back then, there was a lot of cold calls that had to be made. It was just part of the business. Nobody likes to do it. It sucks. Um, but one thing is you can't lie. So I would write a sticky note and put um, Taylor Berryman up on the on the on my computer screen, and then I would call Taylor when I got him on the phone. I'd say, "Hey Taylor, I got a post-it note here. How can I help you?" And usually they'd be like, "Who's this? Why are you saying?" But I would say fifty percent of the time ended up having a conversation. Twenty-five percent of the time got an appointment. So it's just one of those little tricks of the trade that worked really well and legitimately i wasn't lying there was a post-it note with your name on it there was um like doing sales jobs down in nashville jim i would do some of the things that you uh you taught me and they would yell at me at first but like you were saying as soon as you start getting results they leave you alone they don't question it right that's and that's the whole thing if you're selling just let the guy go yeah let him figure it out. Um, my first real sales job, I was working as a recruiter, headhunter. Uh-huh. And much like when you started in sales, I was late 20s, early 30s. And the youngest guy next to me in the office was 55. And most of uh-huh. them were 55 to 70, you know? And after six months, I had billed $1,300, um, which was nothing. And my boss calls me in and he's like, uh, I said, you're going to fire me, aren't you? He goes, well, I can't. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you do everything we tell you to do. You say exactly what we say to say. It's not working. I said, it's not working because I'm not 60 years old. He goes, well, you get a month to figure it out. And the next six months, I... uh, uh, broke a sales record and build over a hundred thousand because I started following my process instead of trying to follow somebody else's. And literally I worked for that company for another six months. And then I got residual pay for 18 months after I left because they couldn't afford to write me a check for the whole thing. So you were kind of in the 11th hour desperate about to lose a job. And you went from doing their process to doing your process. Correct. Okay. Well, where did that insight come from? Um, a lot of trial and error, to be honest with you. But I knew um, being the kid in the group, I didn't have the work experience that these guys I was talking to had. So I had to open them up and explain to them that I was an expert in their field. And I could help them, but I had to do it my way, not old school dial and smile. I mean, you know what? You can make a hundred dials. First off, sales reports, they're always fudged. Nobody makes a hundred dials. So why not make 10 really good dials and have five really solid conversations and set three appointments 
instead of just, you know, fudge the numbers, fudge the numbers. And what I learned is if you had an opening that could engage somebody emotionally, they would have a conversation. And from that, if they started to understand that you understood their problem, even if they weren't ready or didn't think they were ready, they would invite you in because they wanted to hear more about what you had to say. And I think if you remember, the other thing is a lot of times with the smile and dial, these guys are asking for an hour, two hour appointments. I was asking for 20 minutes. And when I get to the appointment, I take my watch off and I put it on the table and say, just to let you know, 20 minutes, we're done. Unless you have other things to talk about. It always went past 20 minutes. Rules of engagement. Rules of engagement, baby. And that is just, you know, setting the standard for what makes us different. Oh, yeah. No, I think one of the most uh, most valuable things you you ever taught me, and this was something that I, I use in my life until this very day, it's the line, I can take a no as gracefully as I can take a yes. Absolutely. And that's straight Jim McCarthy that I, I use that all the time, Jim, whether it's for booking the podcast, uh, getting rejected on a date, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's bailed me out so many times and has opened other doors for me. So since you and I have met, one of the things that we kind of grew into is what we call map to success. Okay. And that is that we work on the mindset. You know, it's the ideas and attitude of how you approach a situation. It's not just the sales piece. The action is that you're consciously um, characterized by physical activity. And then the performance is the process, the sales process, and attempting to accomplish the goal. Um, and when you break it into those three pieces and start working, you know, sales is uh, is, a, is a tough game, but it's business. It's not personal. You mentioned a date. If you get rejected, it's not personal. It's no. business. You know, they're looking at you going, oh, boy, not no, or holy cow, the guy plays bass. Let's go hang out with him. Um, it's just a matter of how um, you perceive yourself instead of allowing others to make that perception for you. Oh, yeah. Well, when did that start happening? What was like the catalyst for you making that change? Um, seriously, um, when I left food sales, I went to work for um, a friend. Um, we were selling sunrooms, of all things, in Maine. We have three months of summer. You know, I could flip my camera around right now. And you'll see all the snow still out there. I'm sure it is. Um, beautiful, by the way. The sun's out. It's 40 degrees. But um, I had this big stack of folders that I was constantly working, constantly working. And I was spending so much time working that big stack that I was missing the clues that there were five files that were raring to go. So I decided to take those five files and that's all I was going to work. And I didn't care. 
And all of a sudden, when I sold one, I replaced it. I sold one, and suddenly, I'm replacing two or three files a week because my concentration is now limited to those people that are actually giving buying signals, want the product, aren't afraid of the price. And, and here's the thing. You've got to have people that will make a decision. They have the money, and they have the need. And once you have that, you've got, you should be able to sell it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think for me, like looking back on the time learning from you and working at the company that I was at at the time, it was really like my Batman begins. Like I was getting beat up on sales calls all the time by prospects and clients. There was a few nice clients that knew I was young because at the time, Jim, I was like 23 years old. I was significantly younger than everybody else um and i was just getting beat up constantly but it was so valuable for the rest of my life to eat that shit because i understood where i stood at the time learned those lessons well now i'm not 23 anymore i'm 31 so when i go in somewhere i mean i still look young don't get me wrong but uh when i go in somewhere um just having the confidence of understanding what makes people tick. And that's what I have to qualify first along with them. Of course, are they going to buy? Are they interested in buying? Um, and then everything from there, you figure out how to help, how to help them make the mm -hmm. decision because buyers, it's an emotional experience. Everybody wants to buy, but nobody wants to be sold. Correct. Correct. And typically the reason they keep hidden and you have to dig to uncover that reason, but when they give it up and they will, um, if you ask the proper questions, you have a questioning strategy and listen and listen. Um, it happens fairly regularly and fairly easily. The one thing that I have never ever ever and people don't believe this but is i get a budget when we get to that point i don't get ballparks i don't get can't tell you i get a budget and once i know their budget for one thing it's going to tell me whether i should be pursuing this or whether it's time to stop and fold up because no matter what i do they cannot afford the product and service that i'm offering and there's ways around that. There's techniques to get budget. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember the one of the, the biggest things that you drilled into me when going on um, sales calls was asking for budgets at that first meeting. It's one of the first things you're supposed to ask about. Do you have the money? Who makes the decision? Who else? And this is what the next step will look like. You got to lead them down down the path to the promised land. Except they have to believe that they're leading you. Yes, 100%. Similar with dating as well. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, just looking back, um, like I said, you know, I was getting beat up all the time on those sales calls. Uh, and I was having people run circles around me because if I was lucky, the youngest prospect or client I was dealing with was at least 30. 
Everybody else was 30 plus. Here comes this young, dumb salesman uh, selling technology. Um, and he's coming in here trying to tell me about computers. A lot of people were on the defensive right away. Do you remember the line I told you to use? Refresh me. Is my youthful appearance going to have an impact on this conversation? I don't think I ever had the balls to actually say it. I might have said it once or twice, but yes. Um, you you taught me so many different different things like that that just helped me. It, it gave me the brazen confidence to do what I needed to get done, even if I was still striking out. Yeah. And it's okay to strike out. Yes, it is. You just got to figure out why you striked out. Um. Ted Williams, Mickey Mantle, baseball heroes. You know, today, even Mike Trout, some of these other guys, they strike out seven out of 10 times. Yeah. They hit 300. You hit 300 in sales, you're going to retire. Hall of Fame numbers. Yep. Hall of Fame numbers. Yeah. I, uh, the baseball analogy with sales is one that I still use to this day that I also learned from you where people, you know, now that I'm not the, uh, I'm not the youngest person, but I'm not the oldest person at any sales jobs that I do now. Um, and if someone asked me a question about sales, that's what I, I mentioned to them. I'm like, it's, it's baseball like seven out of 10 times. You're going to go up there. You're going to strike out. You're going to ground out to second ground into a double play. It's all about figuring out why when you do and then figuring out what made those hits connect when you actually right. were able to connect. Because at first, it's just dumb luck. It seems like it's not, but it seems like it. Um, and you're just kind of figuring it out as you as you go. You know, the thing about sales, which is funny, we're, we're, we're here, but um, most salespeople only spend about 10% of their work week selling. That doesn't surprise me. Well, you think about it. The only time you're selling is if you're in front of a prospect. Um, in our world, we call them suspects. They're not even a prospect until they're qualified to become a prospect. And the problem is they don't want to do the work to get those prospects because it's hard. It's hard to feel uncomfortable, but you're not going to grow. You're not going to change unless you feel a, a large amount of discomfort, like asking that question or asking about money or asking about who makes the decision or asking about who else is going to make the decision with you. Who do you go to for advice when you make a decision like this? Should we invite them into the meeting? I think we should. Don't you? Can you pass on my expertise? No. So why waste the time? Let's all get in the room together and see if we can solve this. And it's uh, a place of help me help you. Exactly. Exactly. And it can be scary. I mean, I remember that that whole time period, Jim. I was so afraid. Um, but eventually you turned me into a confident salesperson in the beginning i couldn't even stand up in a room full of people that i knew and mm -hmm. get, give my 30 second you know 
elevator pitch to the people that I knew. And you got me to the point to where I was calling people up. Hey, uh, the sticky notes on my desk with your name and number. Um, what's up? How can I help you? And it's funny. And that works so often. It's really, really funny. Um, as you know, we used to do cold call boot camps and we would make cold calls on be, you know, you don't have to be an expert in the field. I can set an appointment for anybody and sales guys sitting around going, he just do that. <laughs> but it's all about the questions in the process, leading, pulling that emotional hook out to develop a conversation. And again, I can take a no as gracefully as I can take a yes. That's what it's all about. What I can't take is a maybe that hurts both of us. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, it, it's the, the getting you on the ropes. Like you can never let a, uh, a suspect or a prospect get you on the ropes because that's where you're going to, you're going to stay. They are in control of that. Right. And what you need to do is make them feel like you're in control, but you are in control. You know, Jim, talk to me about kind of the sales and operation operations breakdown because one thing that I've uh, I've always seen with sales there there's a disconnect between the the sales department and the operation department. What are some remedies for that? Um, that's a great question, and oftentimes in a uh, in a business. Um, we can call it admin, we can call it operations, we can call it installation and sales. They always get pissed off because they think the salesman sells it wrong. Um, salesmen get pissed off because they think that the installation department has overpromised them certain things. Um, and what they do is they need to work together. So number one, there should be joint meetings between sales and operations, at least on a monthly basis. I will tell you in the companies that I work with, we actually have the sales manager and the operations manager trade positions for a week and do some on-the-job learning so that they understand that everybody's on the same page. And all of a sudden, they recognize that salesman A is doing this. Well, we can do that, but you need to charge for it and his how. And the sales guy can look at operations and say, oh, my God, I didn't realize it takes four weeks for XYZ product to come in. So I need to quote it at six weeks and not three. And by making sure that everybody's on the same page and doing those meetings and holding the accountability, um, oftentimes what we do is we encourage sales to go out to the installations and buy the guy's lunch. You know, peer-to-peer -peer as opposed to um, makes a big difference. And once people start working as a team, it, it's it's a huge difference. Well, you got to get everybody on the same page because there's been numerous sales jobs that I've worked where there's been a, uh, a communication breakdown. D depending on the industry, too, there's different personality types that gravitate towards different roles. But for instance, if you have a tech guy who's more introverted and is more, uh, I guess I would say more systems focused than people focused, they can get in a tizzy about you promising clients various things, which is why you need to have those meetings. 
those interactions. Correct. And taking the systems guy out on the road with a sales guy is not a bad idea. Yeah, it puts everybody out of their comfort zone. Let him see what the real world is like, what the client is, because the clients are expecting miracles. You know, here's the thing. Nobody, you know, everybody goes and talks about service. There's not one salesperson out there that says, hey, our service sucks, but we're still the best. So a client is expecting good service no matter who they buy from. They're expecting results no matter who they buy from. So if you understand your strengths and weaknesses and you under-promise, over-deliver, your worth to that new client is huge. And the other thing that businesses as a whole forget to do is appreciate their clients. Um, you know, whether it's the company that you work for or others, they, everybody seemed to focus on the top four or five companies, and yet they were getting picked off below that, and that's impacting the revenue stream. So you need to have a system of touches whether, and in this case, we usually divide it an A, B, C, and D client. Um, the D client has to feel like they're being treated like an A client, even if they're not. But the problem is with the D client, the small client, no company is treating them like an A client. So any interest and focus that you show, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, when I was when I transitioned into the food world, um, there's a little company called Sear Brothers up in Caribou, Maine. So way you up know, there. you know Maine, but some of your Nashvilleians won't. Um, that's literally about a seven-hour drive from where we live. So I happened to go up um, the night before. I had a four-wheel drive Jeep in a blizzard. I pull into the place and there's a guy out shoveling the parking lot and the steps and he kind of walks over and he goes, can I help you? And I said, no, I've got a meeting here tomorrow. Um, I just wanted to make sure I was here. He goes, where are you from? And I told him now the company I was working for was out of Boston. I didn't tell him I drove up, drove up from greater Portland, but he goes, you drove all the way up here a day ahead for this meeting. I said, yeah, he goes, who are you meeting with? I told him, he goes, how would you like to meet with the whole purchasing department for the whole morning? I own this place, and nobody's been here before like this. Now, they were a decline. They, they, they never had the capacity to spend more than, you know, X amount of dollars. But based on that meeting the next day, they went from being a D client to a C-plus client. Um, we increased our profitability. And we started to make a trip up there, you know, once a quarter, except during the winter time when there's nine feet of snow on the ground. Um, and they were great. They, they became very loyal and they would actually turn to us and say, Hey, these guys came in and showed us this. Do you have something that competes with it? Or, and sometimes we'd say, no, you know, it's a good product. Go further. Yeah, we do. We'll send you a sample or we'll drive it up. But you got to take care of those smaller clients as well. Because if you lose a major client, 
you can lose a lot of your volume and you can't have all your eggs riding in three or four baskets. You've got to have a stream of small to mid-sized clients as well as the big clients because some of them small and mid-sized clients will grow to be big clients. And if you've developed a loyalty with them, who do they stay with when that happens? They stay with you. Exactly. And when times are tough and the economy is down, those are the clients that you need. That is 100% true. So what was the the catalyst for you for starting Delicious Times? Because I know when I was in Maine, you were still, um, you were like full-time with the uh, the coaching, consultant, business, all of that. Absolutely. Um, it's a short, long story, but in uh, March of 2016, my son passed away. And he and I had been working on a food truck. I had that restaurant background experience. And I just, it was devastating. You can't imagine the loss of a child. And I went and I hid in the, in the kitchen. I called some old friends and said, hey, can you take an old guy in the kitchen? And uh, ended up working at a uh, um, really upscale restaurant in the Gunquit. Got my knives back out, got my wife whites and chef coat. And did that for a summer. And then one night, I'm uh, it's a Saturday night, I'm working my station on the line, and they send the dishwasher home. And all of a sudden, I'm washing the dishes and cooking. And uh, I went home that night, said to my wife, Sandy, I said, I think I'm done. And she looked at me and she goes, are you done hiding? So I still have my consulting practice. I didn't let anybody go, but I didn't bring on any new clients. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. So then I was trying to figure out how could I honor my son without doing a brick and mortar restaurant and working the 80 hours a week. And I said, hey, personal chef, that would be kind of cool. Um, so that's where Delicious Times, T-H-Y-M-E-S, was born. Um, and believe it or not, soon after, we've got people asking us to do consulting for them for menus and for staff training and and um, <clears throat> sales training for wait staff and bar staff and monitoring uh, pilferage and operations and how to grow a business. And uh, the personal chef thing just took off. And like I said, we're now uh, the largest personal chef business in the state of Maine. And uh, we travel uh, wherever people will pay us to go. <clears throat> That's beautiful. So out of, uh tragedy this this new version of you was born but it was a version that was always there it was always there because that's where i started so i just went yeah. back to my roots and uh, i now have a number of uh qualified culinary trained chefs that work for me uh event staff we do catering as well as uh um large events small events but the uh, personal chef piece is uh, it's a lot of fun because it's intimate, but we're giving them a restaurant, an upscale restaurant experience in their home, where they don't have to worry about driving. They don't have to worry about getting dressed up. Um, one of the jokes that we make is, you know, the kitchen's cleaner when we leave than when we got there. Um, and we just have a lot of fun doing it. And people who have not experienced that love it. I mean, we have so many repeat customers that, um, in fact, we had to cut back on some of our catering because last summer we couldn't, um, 
handle the number of clients that wanted return visits with us. So then we had to expand and, and grow our operation. We have a commercial kitchen in Gorham. Um, but we do a lot of on-site, a lot of on-hand cooking. And uh, we just love what we do. So shameless plug, it's deliciousTimesPersonalChef.com. And time just spelled T-H-Y-M-E-S. So, Jim, I think that's the perfect spot to end it at. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hopefully, uh, people were able to glean a little bit of uh, your wisdom off of you, um, I, as I know I have been able to. But thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. And again, the uh, Strategic Financial Insights is still a consulting company. It is still up and running. Like I said, we'll do hospitality and business and or sales, whatever is needed. We can do remote coaching as well, which we do a lot of. And uh, it was great to catch up. Jim, thank you. It was great thank to catch you, up Gail. with you as well. Okay, been real, me... my friend. Yes, for sure.